0: Good morning. It's great to be back with you all on this first Sunday of Advent. We just lit the first candle, but I want you to imagine before we lit the candles that the lights were out. It was completely dark. Most of us have not experienced total darkness before. Uh, We live Um, in a place where there's streetlights or near other homes. Um, There's the moon and the stars, of course. Scientists have actually said that people in total darkness for long periods of time start to hallucinate. They get so disoriented, they can't tell their right from their left. Some of us are experiencing spiritual and emotional darkness. A big one for many people is anxiety and depression. It's so hard to even get out of bed sometimes. Or maybe you're struggling with an addiction that's po- it's so powerful, um, you, you feel helpless to overcome it. Or maybe you've been so hurt in a relationship that um, you don't think things will ever improve. When you've been experiencing those things for a while, you start to despair. C.S. Lewis described Narnia under the reign of the White Witch as winter all the time, but never Christmas. The lighting of the first candle brought the first sign of hope in the darkness. Perhaps that is why the first Sunday of Advent represents hope, and the first candle lit is called the prophecy candle in remembrance of the prophets, especially Isaiah, Who foretold the birth of Christ? So, we talked about how Advent means coming or arrival. And we live between the first Advent when Jesus came to earth um, and the second coming when he comes, the second Advent when he comes back. This morning, we're going to study Isaiah 59. At the time this was written, Isaiah was in exile. After Cyrus conquered Babylon, The Israelites expected the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver them from Babylonian captivity. They waited and longed for rescue. Why wasn't God saving them? Was he not powerful enough to act? How long did they have to endure exile? We often ask these same questions of God today. Are you good? Are you able? How long, O Lord? Let's go ahead and read the first section of Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 8 again. I don't have a slide for it, so get your Bibles out or your phones
1: and follow along as I read. We're going to go through this chapter by chapter, so just keep your Bibles open throughout the sermon or your phone app open. This first section begins in darkness. Again, Isaiah
0: 59, verses 1 to 8. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have kept his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have fallen spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers as poisonous snakes and spin spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds. Their acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their past. They have turned
1: them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. The first point of my sermon is the crooked way leads to death.
0: And the prophet Isaiah doesn't sugarcoat it here. He says to the Israelites in verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, God is more than able. It's not God's impotence but their are iniquities that have separated them from God. What does the word iniquity mean? We don't use that in our everyday language. The Hebrew word for iniquity is avon. That's what the slide there is. It kind of rhymes with iPhone. <laughs> um, and so the Hebrew word um, avon means crooked behavior. There are many words for sin in the Bible The specific word for sin means missing the mark or moral failure. And there's another word for transgression, which means breaking trust. But here Isaiah uses avon in verse 2 to mean crooked behavior. I learned from the Bible project that avon is related to the Hebrew word ava, which means to be bent or crooked. So in Lamentations 3, a road that isn't straight is AVAD. It's twisted or crooked. The writer of Psalm 36 says that his back is avod. That means bent over in pain. Back in September, I broke my wrist. It was completely avod. I slipped and fell. My feet like went up from under me, went up into the air, and I fell backwards. Um, bracing myself with my right wrist and it was kind of in this weird position when I fell on it and I took it out I knew immediately that was it was broken because it was stuck in this crooked position went to the ER they tried to realign it it wasn't still wasn't straight I had surgery It was on my right hand um, I had surgery you can kind of see the scar there um, to to put in a titanium plate with seven screws to hold it straight um, i was not only in pain but my right hand was useless i couldn't do my function in my daily activities like cooking or um, brushing my teeth or brushing my hair Um, basically i could not function the iniquities of the israelites made their ways crooked so that they could no longer function in ways That sustained life or goodness. In verses three to seven, their lips speak lies, empty and wicked things. Their hands are stained with blood from violent acts. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. In her new book, Demystifying Evil, Ingrid Farrow says that evil is the corruption of good. Further, it's the fundamentally the corruption of creational and relational goodness. Evil consists of thoughts, actions, or forces that diminish life. Evil takes what is good and twists and defiles it. When it comes to human behavior, evil injects lies to steal, kill, and destroy what was originally good. Moreover, in verse eight, the people walking down crooked roads will not experience justice or peace. That is shalom. Shalom is more robust than the word in English for peace. It means wholeness, completeness, flourishing, well-being, reconciliation. It's what we all long for. And when Jesus returns in the second advent, he will restore shalom. What humanity is experiencing now is the brokenness of shalom that results from walking down those crooked and dark paths. But I do want to acknowledge that sometimes bad things happen, and it's not a result of our personal sin. It's um, disease, disasters. These kinds of things happen just because we live in a fallen world. I want to skip down to verses 12 to 14 in this chapter, where Isaiah builds on the metaphor. Of crookedness he says we have so much of bone that uprightness or truth cannot even enter our city things were so morally distorted that crooked was the new straight but the confessional way
1: leads to truth follow along again as I read verses nine to fifteen. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not
0: reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We mourn mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none, for deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter.
1: Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Confession requires that we admit that we are lost.
0: Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. Verses 9 to 11 express a longing, to find our way, we are looking for the light, but stumbling the, in the dark as if we have no eyes. Now, that would be an experience of complete darkness. Have you ever been driving and gotten lost? Now we all have Google Maps or GPS, but back in the day when I was growing up, you had to read a paper map. Or if you're going to your friend's house, you would have to call them on a landline and write down the directions, like, make the second left after the gas station. And if you got lost, you actually had to stop, pull over and find someone to ask for directions. I remember a time when our family took a vacation to Toronto and we couldn't find our hotel. Um, My dad was the type of person who um, would never admit that he was lost. So we drove around and around, um, getting farther and farther away from the hotel. And finally, I think we did end up um, stopping to ask for directions. But at that point, we were so far away from the hotel. I don't think, I don't know if we ever made it. I don't actually remember much about that family vacation, except that Toronto has crazy streets and that my parents fought pretty much that whole vacation. And after that, I don't think we took a vacation for a long time. Our next vacation was actually a cruise. Um, So, Sin is like making a wrong turn and then over time getting farther and farther away from our destination. It harms our relationships. It prevents us from living out the purposes that God has for our life. It steals our peace and our joy. Confession, then, is like physically pulling over and stopping the car and asking God and others for help. Um, we It's hard because we have to Admit that we're lost. It takes humility, right? That we are in the dark and we cannot see or find our way. Confession also requires ownership. That I did this. It's easier to blame others. Um, it wasn't me. I she started it, or or blame God for our circumstances? I had um, a bad childhood, or horrible parents, or was dealt a bad hand in life. Right? We make excuses. But we need a change in perspective. Interestingly, you'll notice verses 1 to 8, it's in the third person, you or they. And then in verse 9, it shifts. Verses 9 to 15, it shifts to the first person. The text reflects this change in perspective and change in voice. Verses 12 to 13 hit home. For our offenses are many in our sight. Our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, our avone, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, inciting lies our hearts have conceived. Sin is always an affront against God. Sin is rebellion against a holy God who loves us. We have turned our backs on God and gone our own way apart from God. Our alone has separated us from God. This reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. He had everything with his father, but he decided he wanted to leave home, take his father's inheritance, and he squandered all of it in indulgent living. With nothing left of his fortune, he's starving, and he's looking at the pigs over there and longing to eat the pig Slop. So coming to his senses, he knows that it would be better to return home and beg to work at his father's hired hand. The son comes to the father and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Because sin is rebellion against a holy God who loves us, confession is coming back to the Father and saying, I am sorry, I have turned my back on you, and now I desire to be in loving, close relationship with you again. As Protestants, we don't really stress confession, the practice and discipline of confession enough. We often think of confession as just a private thing that we do between God and God. And us. But scripture tells us that our healing actually requires that we confess our sins to one another. James 6.15 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This doesn't necessarily mean we need to broadcast our sins publicly or on social media, but it does mean that we need fellow Christians to help us in our healing journey. For the last two to three months, I had to go to occupational therapy for my wrist. Um, The therapist would massage my scar and stretch out my wrist. Um, And I have to say, it was painful. It was not comfortable for her to touch my wounds and to do these stretches. But it was important to do this in person. Um, It was important to do the exercises over and over again. And confession is like this. We need to confess to God, but we also need trusted people to confess to in person. People who can pray for us, support us, keep us accountable. And it will feel uncomfortable at the time. But confession in Christian community are absolutely necessary for our growth and for our healing. We also experience the grace of God through other people. So, first, the crooked way leads to death. Second, the confessional way leads to truth. And lastly, the redemptive way leads to life.
1: Turn with me to verses 15b to 21. The Lord looked and was
0: displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. He will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives
1: along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those and Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will
0: not depart from you, and my words that I have put in their mouths will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. God looks around and finds no one to intercede. There is not one righteous person. This is like an echo from Sodom and Gomorrah when God revealed to Abraham that he could not find any righteous men remaining in the city. The people in the place were totally corrupt. God ends up rescuing Lot and his family and then destroying the whole city. Israel deserved the same fate. We deserve the same fate, but God does not destroy. Instead, he himself comes and rescues them By his own arm, he achieved salvation. Returning to the story of the prodigal son, the father sees the son returning from far off, and he runs to him. He puts a ring on his finger and gives him the best robe to wear. He kills the fattened calf, invites all the neighbors to come and celebrate that his son, who was once lost, is now found. Some say the story could have been called the prodigal father. Prodigal just means reckless. The son was reckless in his life of sin. The father is reckless in how he loves the son. Back then, older men were seen as undignified if they ran. And the neighbors probably thought the father was foolish for throwing such an extravagant party for his son who left him and wasted his fortune. What undeserved love when the Father, from whom we have the right to expect punishment, pours out grace upon grace. This is the kind of reckless love that our Father God has for you and for me. But for those who continue to defy Him, there is judgment. The imagery used in chapter 59, verses 17 to 19 is one of war. God is a warrior who comes, carries justice out against his enemies. He puts on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the garments of vengeance. Those who oppose him will experience his wrath and justice. Our God is also a holy God. Verse 19 says God's acts of judgment will cause men all over the world to revere him. The climax of the passage comes in verse 20, where we hear the voice of God. It's in quotes. So God is declaring the good news. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. This is not just the deliverance from captivity that the Israelites were longing for, but this is the Redeemer, the word made flesh, that Christ the Messiah God's own son who will come to accomplish salvation. Isaiah 53.11 says that the servant, that is Jesus, will bear our iniquities. Jesus carried our avon. The most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness is carrying avon. The person who committed the wrongdoing should carry his own avon and suffer the consequences for his own actions. But Jesus absorbed humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. He bore all our avon on the cross and then emerged on the other side of death so that he could offer us life. As opposed to the crooked way that leads to death, Jesus himself is the redemptive way that leads to life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was declaring himself the great I am, the only path to abundant and everlasting life, the very embodiment of truth and righteousness, and the source of both physical and spiritual life. And this is not all the good news. God not only gave his son to redeem us, we often stop there, right? But God also gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in a redemptive way. Isaiah 59 verse 21 begins, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. Pause there. When the Israelites heard there were covenants, they would have remembered all the covenants of what we call the Old Testament, made to them through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. But generation after generation, the Israelites ignored Yahweh's covenants. They broke the terms of the covenant and his commandments. Generation after generation, God said, prophet after prophet to warn them, but they did not listen. Yet here God gives them a new covenant, and that doesn't specify any terms for us to keep, because Jesus fulfilled all the terms on our behalf. That's why the Lord says here, as for me, there is no as for you. The prophet Jeremiah also spoke of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. The prophet Ezekiel also foretold the Holy Spirit. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to follow my decrees and to be careful to follow my laws. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they were all saying the same thing. And this is revolutionary. Listen, God's spirit, his very presence is in you. All of the grandeur, power, and authority of God the Father is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life, all the grandeur and power and authority of God lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit will never depart from you. She will never leave or forsake you. And I use the pronoun she intentionally because the Holy Spirit in Hebrew, ruach for spirit, is feminine. It's also true in Aramaic. Going back to the driving metaphor I used earlier, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your car and she will not Get out of the car. She's there to stay. You um, will experience more of the Holy Spirit as you yield to her, as you give the steering wheel of your car to her. You'll experience more of the gifts of the Spirit to know, discern, and speak with wisdom and with power. People will start noticing a change in you as you start to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will demonstrate these beyond your natural capacity. So when you run out of patience, you'll still be patient with that person. When you face hardship, you'll still have joy and peace of the Lord. And when that person who always annoys you so much, you'll start to see them through the eyes of God and love also beyond your capacity in sacrificial ways. You will live out the purposes of God in your life. That's the Holy Spirit working in you so you can walk in redemptive ways. Verse 21 goes on to say, And my words that have, I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips. What a contrast to the first part of the chapter when their lips uttered empty arguments, lies, and evil things. Now, with the Holy Spirit in you, God's very words will come out of your lips. Your words will be filled with truth and hope and grace, encouragement, comfort, praise, and thanksgiving. Now, led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are speaking and acting and ways that are participating in God's redemptive ways. You are making crooked paths straight. God's words will also be on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore. This covenant of blessing will last from generation to generation until Jesus returns in the second advent. My youngest daughter, Hannah, is so excited about Christmas. So she's made this um, chain out of colored construction paper and takes one loop off every day. And she will announce to all of us how many days left until Christmas. While we don't know the exact day or time Jesus will return, we do know with the same certainty and with the same eager expectation as Hannah has that he will come again he will come in victory he will come to restore shalom and he will make all sad things untrue as we proceed through the advent season and light another candle each sunday we joyfully announce that christ will come again the people walking in darkness have seen a great light On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now let's walk
1: in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we praise you that we once lived in darkness.
0: We are completely lost and maybe some of us are still experiencing some kind of darkness in our lives, Lord. We pray that you would touch each person with your hope. Let them see your light, that you desire for us to yield our life to you, to surrender um, as, as we would to the Holy Spirit, to give the steering wheel of our life to her. Lord, we desire for you to lead us, to guide us, to direct us in our life that we may no longer walk down crooked paths, but that you would lead us in all truth, that we would be instruments of your redemption in this world, Lord. We thank you that you have not only saved us, but you have given us purpose and life in abundance, Lord God. We love you, we praise you, and we thank
1: you so much most of all for Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.